We continue through the book of Luke, and our scripture is, if I can find it, good heavens, this bulletin is extremely confusing. What page is it on? Thank you. I was testing you because I wanted to make sure you were there and not doodling. Okay, now we're ready. Luke 4. Okay, this is Luke 19, oh, excuse me, page 4, Luke 19, 45 through 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. The word of the Lord. Well, we've entered into the last week of Jesus' life. If you'll remember, uh, last week uh, we went through Palm Sunday where uh, Jesus came into Jerusalem. Um, that was Monday. And if you'll remember, the Passover is building in Israel. Two million people are coming from uh, every corner of Israel as well as from other nations to come and worship. Tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people. And so as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, this flash mob of tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And were cutting palm branches and spreading their cloaks as this one, Jesus, mounted on a donkey, came into Jerusalem. As I talked about last week, this was an utter act of sedition because there is only one king and it's Caesar. But to acknowledge this person Jesus in this way was tantamount to recognizing another king. So the climate in Israel is that the new king has come, the new Messiah, the one in the role of King David who has come. And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense that they would think this. I mean, Jesus is really the ultimate weapon, isn't he? He's the one who has power over nature. The stories, of course, have gone out about how Jesus calmed the Sea of Galilee. There were other people on that lake, weren't there? Jesus has raised people from the dead. Jesus has given sight to the blind. Jesus can produce food. You know, an army marches on its stomach, feeding over 5,000 men alone. He is the ultimate weapon. He is styled in the way like King Elijah, excuse me, the prophet Elijah was. Remember as he faces the uh, the priests of Baal, 500 against one, and he decimates them. Their king has come into the city. But there are questions that are starting to emerge, murmurings among the people. For as Jesus came, he came not on a stallion, but he came, he came on a donkey. And as he saw the city, he began to weep over it. Now Luke puts these two uh, things together. If you look at the scripture, the... Um, in terms of him weeping over the city and then going into the temple. But we see, looking at the other um, Gospels, that really a day has passed. In other words, Jesus has wept. He's walked to see the temple. He's looked over the temple, but as Mark tells us, because it was late, he left. He went back to Bethany, two miles away. And so today is Tuesday when Jesus is coming. And we have to think about the question, what is it that Jesus has been thinking about? From Monday, as he's left the temple to go back 
to Tuesday as he's now coming. The people will be looking for him when he comes back, right? They saw him leave. Their expectation will be that Jesus will go straight to attack Fort Antonia. This is where the garrison of the Roman troops are stationed. This is where Pilate's house is. This is where things are supposed to get going. But to their consternation, Jesus doesn't walk down the road to lay siege and to call upon fire to Fort Antonia, but rather he goes and he attacks the temple. In fact, Jesus is a one-man wrecking crew. We see that he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Mark puts it this way. He entered the temple and began driving out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Matthew goes even further. He shows that Jesus entered the temple area and actually drove out all who were buying and selling there. So he not only started, but he went ahead and finished what he started. Now I don't know if you've seen the movie Jesus of Nazareth or seen different movies and it's always a picture kind of of Jesus and he kind of enters this little courtyard and there's like maybe 10 or 15 people. But we need to understand that the temple is set up to accommodate 2 million people. The Bazaar of Annas as it's called in the court of the Gentiles shows that it's a huge area. Think multiple football fields. In one Passover alone, over 260,000 sheep would be sacrificed. So don't think one person with 15. Think one person with hundreds. Animals everywhere. And something comes upon Jesus. And with a supernatural force, he drives out all of these people. Okay, this is... These people's livelihood, it's their money. Do you own a business? Would you simply allow someone to come in and displace you? Oh, I'll go. No, and yet it appears that nobody could stop him. Nobody could stand up to Jesus Christ. There was a passion and a power in what he was doing. That much in the same way as he had control over the environment, control over the world, he was a one-man army not attacking the Romans, but rather attacking the temple. And he said, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now can you imagine the shock that is going on in the Israelites' minds and in the community as he assaults the temple? Because the temple is in essence Israel. Remember Deuteronomy 4, 7. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? Jesus said that I want you to build a place where I will put my name. I will dwell there. It will be a place of prayer. Jesus attacking the temple is attacking the very place where God dwells and also attacking the chief priests and essentially Israel's leadership their government. He's going right into the heart, the epicenter of power, and he is taking it apart piece by piece. Why is Jesus attacking the temple and not the Romans? Because the problem 
is not the Romans. My house shall be a house of prayer. God says in Isaiah 56, it was a place where Israel and indeed the nations could come and commune with God. Solomon said, yet have regard for the prayer of your servant, listening to this cry, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, this place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the pleas of your people Israel, and listen and hear and forgive, that when a man sins against his neighbor, that he can come and speak and you will hear him, when there's a famine because we have acted sinfully against you, that we can come and sacrifice and you will hear and forgive and obey. It is the nexus of heaven and earth. And Jesus is showing that it is the very problem that he has come to deal with. Not only is it for Israel, but it's my house is to be a prayer, a, a house of prayer for all nations. It is the place where the glory of God and the presence of God is to be manifested to the world. And so Jesus has come not to overthrow the political establishment, not to establish heaven on earth, but to fix man's relationship so that it would be right with God. And right now, the religious leaders of the day are actively stopping this. And he is incensed and furious. As I read this story, I thought of this question. If Jesus came back today, where would he go? And who would he attack? Now it's a hypothetical question, of course. We know that Christ is coming back and when he comes, he'll come in the full magnitude of his glory with his army to set everything right. But let's just say Jesus stopped in for an interim before he did that. Would he go to the White House? Maybe Congress? Perhaps he'd head to Manhattan, to the United Nations, or the EU Forum? I don't think so. Jesus would attack the church. Because the reality is, many of the same things that are going on there, were going on there, are going on here. There are many, many churches, God forbid, I hope we're not one of them, where the gospel is not preached. Where you can go and you can hear a great message that can encourage you, to not challenge you, sort of moral, therapeutic teaching, how to have a better life, how to have more stuff. But not the gospel of good news. Not the need for repentance. Not the hope of salvation in one who has come, who by his blood, not the command to give your life away that you might find it. And so the result is people are going to church and they're being lied to. It's all a show, it's a sham. I wonder at the end of the day, how many churches are preaching the gospel? See, to Jesus, the church is the hope of the world. Not a renewed government or nation. And what Jesus is intimately or infinitely concerned about is the purity of its people and the purity of its practice. Jesus says that you and I are the light of the world. We are the ones who are to take the message 
to manifest His glory by how we live and how we speak. What would happen if Jesus came back here today? See, the truth of the matter, my friends, is this, that Jesus loves the church because it's His bride. It's the one that He brought to Himself, that He made beautiful, that He took and said, to the very end, I will be yours and you will be mine. It's like somebody assaulting your bride or your spouse or that one that you love. That's how Jesus feels about the church. And if he loves the church so much, should we not also? If his passion is like that for the church, do we have a passion for purity? Do we have a passion for God's message? I wear a necklace. This is a from my father who passed away. This is a 20 peso gold piece uh, from the United uh, from the uh, Bank of Mexico. It's considered a gold bullion coin, if you will, kind of like the South African Krugerrand or the United States uh, gold dollar. Now there is a 20 peso piece out there. It's a piece of money that's used in Mexico. But this is a little bit different. So this is anything to be considered a, a gold bullion coin has to be 90% or above pure. They put some things in it to make sure that it stays hard and it doesn't get bent. I remember as a kid looking at this on my dad's chest. And there is something about gold, isn't there? There's a beauty to it. There's a luster to it. It's driven men crazy wanting it but there's a purity to it see it's because the bank is behind it because it uh, guarantees its purity that you know the price in fact I could get this coin it's about a half ounce of gold anywhere in the world and the price is going to be about the same because everybody knows its purity everybody knows what it is it's been set apart and by what's inside of it is what makes it beautiful and makes it valuable. See, Jesus is purifying the church. God came into the world to purify His church. And He is purifying it. See, we want Him often to attack out there the problems of the world or maybe those other churches. We want Him to purify those. But the problems of the world will not be solved with politics. It's not about fixing the system. It's about a new life. A message that can change the corrupt heart and make it beautiful and make it pure. Jesus said, upon this rock, the testimony that I'm going to give you, apostles, I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus has gone in this sermon to purify the temple. He continues to purify His church. His heat is upon us. And sooner or later, we will begin to feel it. I believe that we will stand the test of time, but it's only when the heat comes upon that we really know what's inside. Now I want to turn the corner here because some people can say, Carlos, you're going a little bit far with this analogy, right? 
I mean, Jesus entered the temple. Yeah, there were some bad people. But isn't he a little bit over the top? I mean, this is crazy stuff. I want to tell you a little bit about what was going on in the temple so you fully understand it. Where Jesus walked into this area was called the Bazaar of Annas. If you remember, the temple is composed of several different courts. The biggest one outside is called the temple of the, uh, the court of the Gentiles. Anybody can come into it. It's a giant, giant uh, area. And from the court of the Gentiles, you would enter another gate. The gate called Beautiful to the court of the women. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? The court of the women is where Jewish women and men could gather. But Gentiles could not upon threat of death. From the court of the women was the court of the Israelites, which was really of the Israel men, who could go and could look into the gate where there was the court of the priests, where the sacrifices were being taken care of. Well, as you know, in Passover, and one of the key functions of the temple is sacrifice. And so you have millions of people who are coming in. Where are they going to get their animals? Well, a system was set up. It was called the Bazaar of Annas because Annas was the high priest. And what the high priest would do was sell franchise fees to different people who would set up stalls, if you will, to go ahead and sell product, namely animals and other things. Now you're sort of scratching your head going, why don't people bring their own animal? Because that's what it says when you read Leviticus. Well, the issue is the animals need to be a certain quality, if you will. Remember, without blemish and so forth and so forth. Who was the one who would check whether the animal passed muster or not? Well, it was the priests who were under Annas. And so, nope, that animal doesn't work. Nope, that animal doesn't work. But we have one for you. It can be found in the Bazaar of Annas. Pretty soon, no one was bringing their animal anymore. It was a rigged system. And they were selling animals for ten times the fair price. See, people would pay exorbitantly for franchises because it was a captive market. My uncle actually owns some stores at DFW Airport. Have you ever flown through DFW Dallas Airport? It's ginormous. And he has to pay these obscene amounts because it's a captive audience. And so he can charge higher prices. It's exactly what's going on here. Ten times the price. And so as a result in the court of the Gentiles, where the nations are supposed to come and worship, there are tens of thousands of animals. Can you imagine the filth? Can you imagine the smell? As the nations are trying to come in and worship and pray. It's sacrilege. Nah, it's just business. And there was stalls for salt and olive oil and flour, all of them marked up, of course. Now, if you were too poor to provide a lamb, you could buy doves, right? If you're too poor, you could offer two turtle doves. Two turtle doves would cost in our currency about two dimes, a dime apiece. Well, at the temple, they cost $10. And you couldn't just use your money in the temple, by the way, because you used Roman currency. That was the currency of the day. But it was blasphemous to use Roman currency. 
So you had to change your Roman currency into an acceptable currency. Well, there was a fee for that. 25%, right? Ever done that when you go to a new nation? Should have done it at the bank, right? They got you. See, there's a reason that Jesus is saying, you've turned this into a den of thieves because it's a den of thieves, literally. You have the most shady people hanging out in the court of Gentiles who have only one focus and one motive, profit. These people are trying to come into the house of God, all being run by Annas, the high priest. And what is Jesus' response as he throws them out? My house shall be a house of prayer. It's my house, but you have made it a den of thieves, robbers. Jesus takes responsibility for the house because it belongs to him. It's his house, his father's house. Imagine if you left this service and went home and the door was open and people are in your house sitting in your chair but the place is a pigsty because they've started eating whatever they want and have thrown stuff over or you go away for a vacation and come back they're driving it like they stole it right they don't care about it they just want to use it and abuse it and get whatever they can out of it. But Jesus comes to my house. And what would you do? Same thing Jesus did, right? You'd throw them out. They probably couldn't stand up to you. And if they did, I'd call Paul Kavanek, Officer Paul Kavanek, and he'd come take care of business, right? See, that's what Jesus came to do on this earth to drive out the filth, to drive out the corruption so he can dwell there. But Jesus came to cleanse so much more than a building. Jesus came to cleanse the human heart. See, all this is at the end of the day is a picture and an illustration of what God wants to do to his people one at a time. See, the problem of the sinful heart is it's a mess, right? Doesn't Romans say that there's no one who seeks God? Not one of them. They've all together become corrupt. Their mouths are like open graves. They don't care about the things of God. See, it's easy for me to point fingers at other people. Look at the corruption. Look at the institution. People say, you know what? I don't want to go to church. Just a bunch of hypocrites. I say, don't worry about it. There's room for one more. We're all hypocrites. We're all corrupt. We all need cleansing, don't we? But Jesus has come. And the good news is, He comes to drive out evil so that He might replace it with Himself. Jesus has come to purify his own. Not through force, but through love. It'd be so easy if you could just sort of shake it all out, you know, and put it out. But the one who sins is the one who will die. 
all of that corruption, all of that wickedness, the human heart will be paid for that Friday on the cross. Even if I wanted to clean out my heart, I couldn't. I need someone who's absolutely pure, who's absolutely zealous, who's about his father's business, who can come in and do a renovation. And Christian, do you know, if you call on the name of Jesus Christ, this is exactly what he's done in your heart. He's driven out the money changers. He's driven out the corruption. Does not the Apostle Paul say, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? He has purified me. But wait a second, Carlos. I know the depths and the darkness of my heart. Jesus has saved us. He is saving us. And He will save us. He came to stay. He's doing a renovation. It's really a question of those who opened their heart to His cleansing. I remember in college when it was time to finally turn in the keys. We had lived in an apartment for a couple years together, me and four other guys. We were extremely clean, cleanly people. You know, it was, it was immaculate, if you will. You could eat off the floor. Granted, I don't know what you'd be eating off the floor. There was a problem. We used to play this game, and we had this long hallway where one guy would try to get by the other guy, right? And, you know, you'd try to, you know, squeeze by, but if you were quick, you could sort of pin him against the wall. So I remember one time when one of my roommates was running down, and I timed it just perfectly and just put him right through the drywall. I mean, huge hole right here. Now, I didn't know how to fix drywall, right? But I think the landlord is going to want that fixed. Thank goodness for my roommate's dad, who came in with the mud and all the tools and the new drywall, and he came in, and he rehabilitated. He cut out the old. He brought in the new. By the time it was done and painted, that place looked better than it had ever looked before we even got there. Jesus is intending for nothing less than a holy habitation in our hearts. And the blood that he will shed on Friday is more than enough to cleanse the corruption of the deepest, darkest heart. He stays and he makes us acceptable. Jesus went into the temple because it belonged to him. But Jesus is so gracious that though he made us, he doesn't barge into our hearts. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, if anyone wants me to come in and do a work, I will. Have you opened your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you let him come in and wreck your house? Throw out the furniture. Bring in the new stuff. Have you given them the keys and the deed and say it may be a fixer-upper, but it's yours? The Bible says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, let us offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. 
This is our spiritual act of worship. I love the end of this story. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and scribes, they were trying to destroy him. But they couldn't because the people were hanging on his words. The very place where Jesus threw out the money changers, he replaced with himself. He brought a new word, a new presence, a new life. The worshipers that Jesus is looking for are not the people that have all the money, not the people that have it all together, but the people who will worship him in spirit and truth. The people who have opened up their hearts and said, dwell in me, change me from within. Let me live in your truth. How can we make sure that this church is pure? It's not by scrubbing the walls. It's not by keeping the books clean, though that's a good idea. It's each one of us saying no to sin, opening the dark corners of our heart to the control of Jesus and what we watch and how we live and how we speak and how we love our wife, our girlfriend, the children in our house. Jesus has done a renovation and he will not stop until it is complete. And one day he will wreck this earth and recreate it and it will be paradise. Until then, if you have not yet done so, open the gates of your heart and let him come in and do a work. For he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it all the way up until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you sent your son. Jesus, I thank you that your renovation is more than simply patching up drywall but it's a resurrection, a new life, a new heart that you are tending and caring for. Jesus, I pray that our life would be filled with the purity of your Holy Spirit, that we would live in such a way that befits your presence as our honored guest and master. And Lord, we pray for this church that if you were to come back, you would celebrate not that we have it all together, but there is no hypocrisy, Lord. Rather, there is humility and dependence and trust. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.